Alright, so Nita's not here and she took my little Bible, so this message is going to be much more powerful. I have my big Bible with me. But we've been spending the last two weeks, as I look back and I realize, we've spent the last two weeks talking about three verses. And Matt was asking me, okay, so where do you need me? I'm going to be teaching next week. Matt is, and I'm telling him, okay, you're going to be, I'm telling him where we're at. He's like, that's as far as you've gotten? It's like, what are you doing? You're, you're teaching one verse at a time? I'm like, no, this week we're going to do ten verses, okay? We did three verses in two weeks. This week we're going to do three, more than three times that in one Sunday. All right, so I promise we're going to pick up the pace. But we've been focusing as we looked at chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, this idea of these competing priorities that we encounter. And what, who is our priority? What is our priority? And we've talked about the world and how the world puts all these things before us that try to take our time and our attention. And they're not necessarily bad things. They're, they're good things most of the time, these good gifts that God has given us. But yet God wants to be first place and He wants to be the greatest priority. And as we considered that, what does it look like for God to be the greatest priority? That's what we talked about the second week. That we would seek the presence of God. That we would seek to be in His presence. And as we looked at the end of verse 17, the one who lives forever, the one who has eternal life, it's not the one who knows the will of God, it's not the one who has a great desire for the will of God, but it says the one who does the will of God will live forever. It's because we know the, His will and we have passion for His will, therefore we do His will. It's all three together, but it has to end up in this doing of His will. It has to work its way out in our lives. And the way that it works its way out, the way that John has told us, is that it's by loving God. That we would love God and we would pursue this desire that He's placed within us, that we would cultivate it, that we'd work it out. Like we talked about, we'd exercise it, that it would become the greatest priority in our life. It's just to be in the presence of God, to be filled with God. And filled with that love of God, then we can pour that love out on each other. We can pour that love out on our neighbors. And so that brings us to verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to go all the way through 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become clear that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Alright, so look back at verse 18. We're going to go through this verse by verse. John says, it's like, remember John is an old man, it's like he's gathering these children, he says, children, he's affectionate, he's grabbing them around him, he's like, I want you to come close to me. 
I want you to listen to me. I've got something very important to tell you. And he says, it's the last hour. And then at the end of that verse in 18, he says, therefore we know it's the last hour. He's trying to communicate that this is a state of urgency. This is a state, this is important. He says, I want you to listen up. I want you to listen to me. What I have to say is important. And if you think about that, a last hour, if you're in the last hour, it brings perspective. You start to focus. It brings this perspective of focus. If you know that you're in the last hour of vacation, the last day, you take note of it. You start to really try and enjoy it before you have to go home. If you know, if you've experienced, these are the last days of my life. If you know that you have a terminal illness, you start to see things differently. You start to take matters differently. You start to prioritize differently. I need to make sure what's important is most important. Who am I going to be with? And what am I going to do? This is the last hour. And as I thought about that in my life, I don't know that I've ever truly felt that except one time. That I really felt like this is it. This is the, this is the end. And it was when my grandfather passed away. We had moved to California. We had been here about six months. I left my family. We had been in Chicago, but there in Atlanta. So we moved as far away from them as we can possibly be. East coast to west coast. And my grandfather was living with my parents. I knew that he had been sick. I'd been talking with him. But then my mom and dad called me and he had been put into hospice. And it was just going to be a day or two. And I remember at that moment feeling, what in the world am I doing out here? Why am I across the country? Why can't I just drive over? And so we got together what money we could. We got together the tickets. We hopped on a plane. We took all six of us. Got on the plane, we arrived in Atlanta about 1 in the morning. My mom picks us up, all the kids in one car, all of us in another car, because it can't fit us all in one car. And we, my wife and I went straight to the facility where he was at. And I remember walking into his room, I remember seeing him and watching his chest rise and his chest fall. And he was not alert, he wasn't responsive. But I got to be there. I got to be with him. And the night that we got there, I stayed overnight with my dad. And I remember just sitting there, and what a privilege it was to be with my grandfather, to be in his presence, to just be there with him and just sit there with him. He couldn't talk to me. He couldn't respond, but I just held his hand. I remember just praying for him. And I was there with him when he passed. It was his last hour. And that weekend, over that week, I was able to speak at the funeral. We cried together. We mourned together. There were so many things that we did. There were so many things that were said. But what was most important, what was most important was that I got to be with him, that I got to be in his presence, and that I got to be in the presence of my mom and my dad when he passed. I was there, that we were together. It was the last hour we wanted to be with him. There was a song that I remember growing up, and it says, it's about a funeral, and it says, there aren't words to say. The words aren't remembered, but presence is. When it's the last hour, if it's the last hour, then we need to be in the presence of God, and we need to be in the presence of each other. We need to be together. And I think this is what John is saying. Do we have a last hour focus? Do we really believe that? Do we really understand that? That Jesus says, this is the last hour, so who are you going to be with, and what are you going to do? And are we a last hour church? Is that our perspective? Do we understand that? Do we believe that, that hell is real? Do we believe that this life is temporary? 
Because if we did, then we would approach our life, we would approach our priorities, we would approach what we do and who we are with much differently. And John is telling us it's the last hour, children. We have to consider that. So if it's the last hour, who are we going to be with? I've told you guys, this whole book has been about fellowship, about being with God and being with each other. But John goes into verse 19 and he actually says that there are some that are not of us. Some that we don't have fellowship with. Verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So I think one of the initial tests of fellowship, one of the initial things that we see is presence, is loyalty. I'm going to stay with, I'm going to remain with, we're going to stay together, we're going to be about God and we're going to be about what He's doing. And you know this. You know that when you go through difficult times, you know when it's the last hour, you know when you're suffering, you know when things have gone wrong and gone bad. Who is it that's there through thick and thin? Who's going to be with you? Those that are your closest with, those that you share a heart with, those that you share a passion with, those that you're together with. And an easy way to, to detect that is tell everybody, in two weeks, I'm going to be moving, and there's going to be a U-Haul at my house, and I need you to help unload and load my house. Anybody that can help, I need you to help unload and load the U-Haul. That's a great way to know who's with you, who's willing to help you move. Right? We've all experienced that, knowing... Is somebody going to show up? Are they going to help me move my stuff? Who is it that cares about me? Who is it that will make time? Who is it that will make this a priority to come and to be with me? So we need to be together. We need to be willing to do together. We need to be willing to stay together, to remain together. But is that it? Is that what's needed for fellowship? Is, it just, is that irrefutable proof that we have fellowship just because we stay together, just because we hang out together? And I think John is pointing to something deeper. He's pointing to something that's more integral for fellowship. That's a critical test for fellowship. If we have true fellowship, we're going to have an amazing unity. But it's also going to create a distinction. It's also going to create division. If we have true fellowship, that will happen. And I look at this in verse 19, and I see what John is writing and he keeps saying, us and they, us and they. If you look at verse 9, it said, they went out from us, they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. They might become plain that they are not of us. John is making a clear distinction, a clear division of they and us. And as I read this, I'm like, John, what are you doing? Like, doesn't he know that any leader is supposed to unite the people, is supposed to bring the people together? Why is he creating this thing that's going to create division? Why is he saying them and us, them and us? Why is he making this distinction? And I think we tend to do this in our culture, but not in a right way. When we have a we-they attitude, when we have a we-they perspective, it's usually in a negative context. We tend to divide ourselves. We think about socioeconomic status, about ethnicity, about if someone is an immigrant or a citizen, if someone is English-speaking or Spanish-speaking, if someone is black or white or Hispanic, we divide based on those characteristics. We make distinctions. We say, who's the we and who's the they? And we consider those things. 
And typically when we say the we, the we are the accepted ones, and the they are the rejected ones. And when we make those distinctions, the they's, we tend not to trust, we tend not to care for, we tend not to love on, because they're not part of us, they're they's. The other night, on Monday, I left work, came home, needed to try to get the kids ready. We got in the van, we headed over to Van Nuys, we stopped by Pollo Loco, we got the chicken in the car, we're eating that car, we get to the funeral home for Maddie Cruz's son. We find a place to park on the street, we start to go in, and as we go in, it becomes very clear to me, and I live here in Lanark Park, I'm one of the only gringos, right? Some of you have joined me. But this is what I'm used to, but I walked over there, and it was very clear that these were not my people. These were not just Latinos, these were Latino Latinos, okay? And everyone there was Latino. And here comes Britt walking in with my big family and all my kids, and I felt the heads turn. I felt the people stare. I felt the conversations that were happening. Who is this guy? What is he doing here? What, what, how does he know? And so we walked in, we saw Mari Cruz, we prayed with Mari Cruz, we talked with Mari Cruz, and then Haiti and Grace were there. And so after we talked with her, we went over and we stood in the corner with, ha with Haiti and Grace. And I'm looking around. This place is full of people. There were three times as many people there that are here this morning. Filled in this room. And I'm sitting there to the side. But I can just feel everybody's head turning and looking at me. Turning and talking about me. And I'm standing by Haiti. And I'm like, Haiti, do you see all the people looking at us? All the people staring at us? And she sort of laughs. And I said, I think they're staring at you. And she, She's like, why? And I says, because they found out you're not Mexican, you're El Salvadorian. And they all know it. They all know that you don't belong here. And she starts to laugh. She says, she says Brit, it's because you're a big fat widow. That's why they're all looking over here. But at that moment, I felt like a they. I was perceived as a they. Should this exist in the church? Should we feel that in the body? Should we feel that at Living Stones? We talk about every week, we get up and we say we're a multi-ethnic, multi-class, multilingual, gospel-centered community. All these multis, but one gospel. And John hasn't gotten to it, but that's what he's saying. There's not to be all these divisions over all these other things, over all these socioeconomic status, over who we are, what our background is. It's not that we come here and we have to drop that or lose that or give that up. We still have those things. We are who we are. But we're one together because of the gospel. We're one together because of Jesus Christ. And when we come here, that's what we have in common. That's our fellowship. That's the biblical distinction. The gospel. The person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what John is talking about here. That's what creates the we and the they, is where we stand on the gospel. Let me read verse 20 through 23. In verse 20 and 21, he's talking about the we's. Okay, this is a description of the we's. In verse 22, he's talking about a description of the they's. So the we's. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. That's the we's. We've been anointed. We have the truth. And then in verse 22, 
the they's. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So the biblical distinction between the we's and the they's is Jesus Christ. The biblical distinction between the we's and the they's is the gospel. If you look at John's other writing in John 14, 6, he says, Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life. As you look at verse 23, he's basically saying, no one who denies the Son, no one who denies Jesus, no one who denies the gospel, has the Father. You don't have that fellowship. But whoever confesses the Son, whoever confesses Jesus, whoever confesses the gospel, has that relationship, has that fellowship, has the Father also. So what John is saying here is that the gospel, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it's the truth of all truths. It's the doctrine of all doctrines. It's the one thing that we can't disagree on. It's the one thing that we can't adjust. It's the one thing that we can't change. The gospel is the gospel as it's been described in the Word, as it's been demonstrated through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. We don't change it. If you guys remember in Galatians when we studied that, Paul even said, if I myself, if I come to you and preach a different gospel, if I change the gospel, he says, let me be a curse. Let me basically go to hell. Let me be cast away if I distort or deceive you with a different gospel. There's one gospel, and that's what John is saying. This is the distinction. This is what creates the we's and the they's. This is what decides our fellowship. And it's because Jesus is the truth. And if you guys think about it, truth in itself is exclusive. Truth in itself is divisive. And I might say those words and you might cringe a little bit and you might feel shy about that. And well, Do we really say that in our culture that there's only one way and that Jesus is a way and that there's no other way to get to the Father except through Him? Did Jesus really mean the second part of that verse? You know, was there maybe another way? Was it maybe that we could be good enough or that we could, if, as long as we believe something, we really believe what we believe and we're going to have that fellowship. We're going to have that fellowship with the Father. And John would say no. The distinction is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think we misunderstand that because we misunderstand truth. In our society, in our culture, truth is very relative. You can have two views on truth. You can have the idea that truth exist outside of me it's a reality that's not dependent on me truth forms me truth constructs me that's one view the second view would be that I exist outside of truth and truth is a reality that's dependent on me I construct it it depends on me and we know in the physical world we believe that first idea of truth we know that some things are true, that we cannot change them. The laws of physics, the law of gravity, the law of... All these different things that are going to happen that we cannot change in the physical world. And if we don't agree with that, then we, well, we have a break with reality, right? We don't understand, like, something's not right with us, or either it's a joke. And as I was... On Friday night, Nidia's gone, and I confess, since she left, what did I come home from work? I got the kids, and what did we do? We ordered pizza, and we went by Redbox, and we watched a movie. And we lounged in the living room, and I sort of watched part of the movie, sort of slept through the other part of the movie. 
while they were eating pizza, while they were watching the movie, and don't tell Nita that we set up the table in the den and they got to eat pizza in the den. All right? I'm saying that I'm going to test and see if she actually listens to this message. But we were watching Madagascar 3. And I realized that as I watched the scene with the penguins, the penguins are the masterminds, the penguins are the ones that are trying to break them out, trying to get them home. And they're saying, we're going to buy this airplane, we're going to buy, it's an, an Airbus A380. And this one penguin is talking to the other penguins, we're going to buy this airplane, it's going to be solid gold. And the other penguin starts to calculate, he says, but, but if it's solid gold, boss, it won't fly. And the penguin says, says we're rich. The laws of physics don't apply to us. And we know that's a joke. We know that's for comedic relief. We know that's to humor us because we know, no, that law applies. It's a truth. You can't change it. You can't have a solid gold plane that's going to fly. We know that's the truth. But when we consider the spiritual world, we tend to waver and we tend to think relatively. We don't think that same way. In the spiritual world, we think, well, if that's true for you, then that's true for you. And if that's true for me, then it's true for me. And maybe they can both be true. But a biblical view would say, no. A biblical view is just like the first. A biblical view of the spiritual world is just like the physical world. There's one truth that exists apart from us. We are dependent on it. We cannot change it. We have to conform to it. We can't conform it to us. We can't escape that truth. We may feel like right now I can, I can dodge it, I can put it off, I can not deal with that, I can not face that. But one day, we're going to come face to face with the truth. One day, we're going to come face to face with Jesus Christ. One day, we're going to stand before Him, and the Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you are saved or whether you're not saved, whether you know Him or whether you do not know Him, you're going to bow your knee. And we have the opportunity now to bow our knee and to confess that truth right now. Or we will do it later by force. We'll do it later, not of our own volition. And the difference between doing it now and doing it later is the difference between heaven and hell. The difference between doing it now and doing it later is the difference between an eternity in God's presence, an eternity in His fellowship, and an eternity away from it, an eternity separated from God. That's the difference. That's the distinction. Do we admit the truth? Do we accept the truth? Do we respond to the truth and confess it and live our lives in response to it? Or are we holding back? So we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is the gospel. The main thing is the, per, the, the work and the person of Jesus Christ. You're either with Jesus in fellowship with Him or you're not. Those are the two options. Those are the two choices. That's it. That's the truth. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, well, really, has, has God always been like this? You know, we talk about that the Old Testament is, you know, God's wrath, and the New Testament is God's love, and, but here we are in the New Testament, as John is clearly saying, here's the distinction. The distinction is Jesus Christ, choose. The distinction is Jesus Christ, are you going to be with Him or against Him? And I look back in 1 Kings, chapter 18 through 21. And it says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between, between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. Make a choice. 
But what does it say? It says the people did not answer him a word. The people just stood there. The people didn't choose. The people thought, I can put this off. I can wait. I can deal with this later. But Elijah says, choose. But we want to keep our options open. Let me sort of figure this out. Let me sort of go a little bit longer. Let me decide, okay, I, I confess Jesus Christ, but let me decide if I really want to give Him my entire life. Let me hold back on that. And John is saying, choose. Decide. And if we decide, He gives us a summary of the result. And as we do that, He shows us how we can remain in this authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me read verse 24 through 25. It says, let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. If we abide in the Word, if we abide in the Word become flesh, if we abide in Jesus Christ and the person and the work, if we abide in the Gospel, then we have this fellowship with the Father and we have this fellowship with the Son. And if we have that fellowship with them, then we have this eternal life. And having that eternal life, we will be in fellowship with the Trinity. We'll be in fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. We'll be with them. We'll be in their presence. This thing that I've been talking about, about being in the presence of God, we'll be in their presence fully, experiencing them, amazed by them, overwhelmed by them for all of eternity. That's the result. That's the result of embracing this truth of Jesus Christ. But verse 26 says, I write these things to you, about those who are trying to deceive you. John's worried that we might not remain in this authentic gospel. But he wants us to be prepared. You will be, you'll experience deceptions, you'll experience distortions of the gospel. You'll experience them in your own heart. You'll experience them in the church. You'll experience them for sure in the world. There will be distor- distortions and there will be deceptions about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We will encounter them. And John wants us to know and experience this truth. He wants us to know and have fellowship with Jesus Christ so that we can recognize the lie when we see it. And if you were a federal agent, all right, everybody imagine, but if you were a federal agent and your responsibility was to identify counterfeit currency and you were trained, almost all of your training would not be understanding counterfeit money It would be studying and learning the authentic thing, the real thing, the real currency. You would spend all of your training studying and understanding what a true $100 bill looks like, what a true $20 bill looks like, what are the characteristics of these bills, what are the identifying characteristics that they have that I can be sure that this is the true, the real, the authentic thing. And it doesn't take much time. It doesn't take much training. Because all you have to do is study one type. And I want to prove to you guys that you have been trained to detect counterfeit money. You have this skill. You know the truth. You know what's real. So Mana has given me a $100 bill from her own free will. I didn't force her to give it to me. And she said that I could give it to whoever asked for it first. Is anyone going to ask for it? You guys don't. Ernesto. All right. So Ernesto gets this $100 bill. All right. This is a $100 bill. 
You look at it, Ernesto. Is it a $100 bill? So Ligia said it's bigger than normal. But it looks real otherwise, right? It looks like a $100 bill. It feels like a $100 bill. But like Ligia said, it's bigger than normal. And if you studied a little bit more, it says in the middle, play money. So there are some characteristics that it, don't, that it doesn't have of the authentic $100 bill. But there's something about having it. You see that, you're going to pick it up. You see that, you're going to take a look at it. You see that, you're going to examine it. And you guys knew right away, well, one, because you didn't trust me that I would give you a $100 bill. And two, as soon as you saw it, you're like, that's not the right size of a $100 bill. So what you guys are telling me is that you've studied money, you've saved money, you've spent money, you've carried money, you've folded money, you've looked at money, you've considered money, you know what real currency looks like, you know what money looks like, and you were able to understand what he has is counterfeit, what he has is not real. You were able to tell that right away. And so I want to ask you, do you feel the same about the gospel? Do you feel the same if someone shared with you the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's done, would you be able to tell if it's a distortion or if they're trying to deceive you? Have you been with God's Word? Have you been and experienced the Gospel? Have you experienced Jesus Christ so closely, so intimately, know so much about it that you can tell all fakes? You can tell when there's a distortion. And that's what John wants from us. He wants us to be so familiar with Jesus Christ that we are sure when someone is telling us a lie. We are sure when someone is trying to make a distinction. Because this is the one thing, this is the thing of all things that we need to know. This is the thing of all things that we need to be sure of and we need to be understanding of. So through the Word and this fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we know these identifying characteristics of the gospel. And we're not going to go into all of the characteristics, but some of the things in regards to the gospel, these identifying characteristics, things I want you guys to think about. Do I understand this? Do I know this? Am I familiar with this? Have I experienced this? Those things are God's holiness. It's our sin. It's the incarnation of Christ, that Christ was fully man, that He was fully human. It was the perfect life that he lived. It was his substitutionary death for us, his atonement for us, his death on the cross, his resurrection. That those things are the identifying characteristics of the gospel. Those are the identifying characteristics of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We need to know them. We need to recognize them. We need to be able to tell when someone is deceiving us and trying to change those truths. And the way to do that is not necessarily to study more, not necessarily to read more of God's Word. Those are good things, those are helpful things. But we do that through the Holy Spirit, by abiding in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the part of God that we have neglected, the part of the Trinity that we do not use. We underutilize this amazing resource that God has given us to live by and to understand His Word through. But we neglect Him. As John goes into verse 27, and he talks about this anointing. All right, so this anointing is how we understand and how we apply the gospel. Does that make sense? Everybody's on board? In verse 27, this anointing 
that you have received. And we're going to look back to John's Gospel to understand what he's saying. So for the anointing you've received, look at John 15, 26. It says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send, this is Jesus talking, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. I'm going to send to you. You're going to receive Him from me. We did not earn the Holy Spirit. We did not do something to get the Holy Spirit. God sent the Holy Spirit. We received this Holy Spirit from God. It's a gift from God. It's through God's grace that we have the Holy Spirit. If we have confessed Christ, if we have submitted ourselves to this Gospel. So in addition to receiving this anointing, if you look further in verse 27, the anointing you've received, one, from Him... It abides in you. So this anointing abides in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Look at John 14, 16 through 17. It says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you. For how long? Forever. He's given us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. In verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. As I was reading that, I was amazed. God gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us God the Spirit, and God the Spirit comes and we receive Him. And He doesn't just come with us for a minute. He doesn't just come with us for when we're doing well. He comes with us, and He is with us forever. And He abides in us. He lives in us. He is inside of us. And that is an amazing thing. And how do we just forget that and underutilize that? We don't use this amazing resource of God Himself in us. So we've received this anointing of the Holy Spirit. This anointing of the Holy Spirit abides in us. And then if you look a little bit further, this anointing of the Holy Spirit teaches us. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. John has talked about this before. John 14, 26. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, again, this is Jesus talking, He will teach you all things. And He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This Holy Spirit that we've received, this Holy Spirit that lives in us forever, He's going to teach us all things. He's going to bring to remembrance all things. He's going to teach us all truth. Everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus demonstrated, we're going to understand that. We're going to see that through this Holy Spirit that abides in us. So we've received Him. He abides in us. And He teaches us. So what are we to do? Look at the end of verse 27. It says, Just as it is taught you, Abide in Him. We have to remain in the Holy Spirit. We have to be in His presence. We have to experience Him. We have to hold on to the Holy Spirit. We just have to acknowledge Him. We have to abide in Him. It's the only command that we have. As you look at this passage, as you look at these ten verses, the only commands are in verse 24 where He says, Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. And then here at the end of 27 where He says, Just as it is taught you, abide in Him. As we've understood the gospel from the very beginning, abide in it. And as we've understood that, then we abide in this Holy Spirit that's going to make that true, that's going to demonstrate that to us. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate resource that we have. 
God has given himself to us. And as I looked at John, it's in chapter 16, verse 7. But Jesus says, it's better that I go, that I could send you this helper. And I know I've read that over and over. I'm like, really? I think I'd rather have Jesus with me. But Jesus said, it's better that I go, that I would send you this helper. And as you read John, and you read through chapter 14 and 15 and 16, and you realize it is better. Because we have this Holy Spirit, this Spirit of truth that's going to teach us all truth. It's going to teach us everything about Jesus Christ. We're going to understand Him. We're going to understand the Gospel. And then He's going to be our helper. This helper is what Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. He's going to help us to understand that truth and help us to live out that truth and help us to abide in that truth and help us to live it out. That's what God has given us. He's given us Himself to do that in our lives. We just abide in that. We just remain in that. We just stand in that. So... Eternal life and the Christian life here and now is not what you know, is not what you say, but by these passages, it's if you abide. It's not what you know, but it's who you know. Who do you have fellowship with? That's what's important. That's what's critical. So the question this morning is, do you know God? If you don't know God, then the truth is, is that you're separated from Him. And if you don't come to a place where you do know God, then you will be separated from Him for all of eternity. You will not experience that fellowship with God. You will not experience that fellowship with His Son. You will not experience that fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That's the truth. If you do not know Him now, you do not know Him later, you will never know Him. You'll be separated from Him. And some of you are saying, well, I know Him. I confessed Him. And so the question for you is, are you abiding? Are you abiding in the Gospel? Are you abiding in the Holy Spirit? Does your life reflect that truth? Are you resting in that truth? Is it changing your life? Emmanuel read from John 15, and I'm going to repeat it. Verse 5 and 6. He says, I am the vine. Again, this is Jesus talking. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you cannot have fellowship. Apart from me, your life cannot be changed. Apart from me, you'll be in darkness. But in verse 6, he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This is Jesus, and He's pretty straightforward. You abide in Me, you're going to have life. You abide in Me, you're going to produce fruit. But if you don't, you're going to wither, you're going to die, and you're going to be gathered, and you're going to be thrown into the fire. So the question is to ask ourselves in response to that. Are you abiding in the Word of God? Are you abiding in His presence that we've talked about? Is He a priority? Is He the greatest priority? If you're not in the Word, if you're not in His presence, then are you abiding? And if you're not abiding, then do you have fellowship? And if you don't have fellowship, then the question is, do you have eternal life? We have to ask ourselves those things.
And that's why John wrote us this letter. So he wanted us to have this fellowship. If you look back to verse chapter 1, verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And he's talking about Jesus Christ. He's just described Jesus Christ. He's just described the incarnation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And he says, We proclaim this to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John isn't threatening us. John is gathering us as little children. He's saying, my kids, I want you to understand this. I want you to know the truth. I want you to know the way. I want you to know the life. I want you to study it. I want you to know Him. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to abide in the Holy Spirit that He has sent to you. The Spirit of truth, this helper that God has given us. I want you to abide in that and you will have eternal life. You will have fellowship with me, you'll have fellowship with the Father, and you'll have fellowship with the, with the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. Lord, that you have given to us, that lives in us. Lord, just blow our minds this morning with the fact that you live inside of us, that you will remain with us forever, that that's what you do, that you abide in us, Father. Lord, and I pray that we would just reciprocate, that we would abide in you. Lord, that you would teach us all things about you, Lord, that you would show us the truth, that we would understand the truth, that we would experience the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Father. And that through that truth, Lord, we would experience fellowship with you and we would experience eternal life. Lord, this is the last hour. This, you tell us very clearly, Lord, let us not deceive ourselves and think it's not. Lord, let us think about our lives. Let us think about who it is that we're spending our time with, who it is that we are living for. Because this is the last hour, Lord. This is the priority. Lord, I pray that we would give your gospel priority in our lives, the priority that it deserves. So Lord, we come before you humbly, acknowledging that now, Father, not of our own doing, not of our own skill, but because you have moved in us, Father. You have pursued us. You have chosen us. Lord, you love us. Oh, how you love us, God. Lord, thank you. Lord, fill our hearts with gratitudes. Lord, help us to abide in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.